Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we interview journalists and think tank types about topical global issues. And we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career. There's a pretty unconscionable situation unfolding right now in the sea between Myanmar, Thailand, Indonesia, and Malaysia. Thousands of refugees are adrift and have been for weeks. Most of these refugees are Rohingya Muslims from Myanmar who are fleeing persecution and escaping from intolerable living conditions. No country has been willing to take them in. In fact, navies have been pushing them back to sea when they've come close to shore in what's been a wretched game of human ping pong. And in the middle of it all are rings of human traffickers, basically modern-day slavers, who are operating out of the jungles of Thailand. On the line with me to discuss the situation is Sarnata Reynolds of Refugees International. She describes the conditions that are driving the Rohingyas to take this perilous sea voyage, discusses the roles of regional governments in perpetuating the crisis, and explains how smuggling and trafficking rings are making life even more miserable for what is arguably the world's most vulnerable people. Now, if you want more background on the Rohingya, I recommend you go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and find the episode titled The Rohingya of Myanmar, in which my guest, Matthew Smith, goes deep into the political and cultural roots of discrimination against these people. And we recorded that conversation right before President Obama's second visit to the country. For now, though, here is my conversation with Sarnata Reynolds of Refugees International. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. What we know is that Indonesia, Thailand, and Malaysia met yesterday to discuss the situation and try to figure out what they can do as regional actors with thousands of people in the water who need help. Coming out of it, Malaysia and Indonesia said that they would accept 7,000 of the Rohingya who are currently in boats. That's a huge change and an incredibly important change because until then, the policy of all three governments had been to, to actively push people back out to sea. They might give them some clean water, some food, but ultimately push them back out to sea where we know people are dying of starvation, of dehydration, and unfortunately there are, you know, now there's enough tension on the boat, some of them have been out there for weeks or months, that there are you know, um, fights going on in boats that are also resulting in the deaths of people. So it's really important. It's uh, happening in the context of a country, Myanmar, where people are fleeing from, saying that it has no obligation whatsoever to them. So it's, 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 a, it's an important move. And a hard move to make when the you know the persecutor here is saying they have no obligations at all. Mm-hmm. So Indonesia and Malaysia have agreed to take in uh, the Rohingya that are stranded at sea right now. Are, are, does this mean that they're going to do like search and rescue operations and try to bring them on shore? 
no, it doesn't mean that actually. And they haven't agreed to bring in all of the Rohingya. So they've said 7,000. So we think there's some are, you know, maybe 7,000 to 8,000 out there. But you know, this isn't new. And there's no reason to think that this is going to stop happening, that boats will, will stop uh, leaving from Myanmar. So those people, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if they'll, they'll end up being the stranded ones, you know, the new wave of stranded refugees on the ocean, on the water there. Um, They've also said that this isn't about search and rescue. This is if people, if, if boats uh, end up within their territories. Oh, I say sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm basically are, are on their shores. Then they will take them and help them. But this isn't about affirmatively going to look for people who are on the mm-hmm. on the sea and, and in desperate need. It's fishermen really who have been doing that, which is you know a real testament to their moral integrity and you know their their capacity for you know humanity. Right, like while these navies have been pushing boatloads of huddled migrants that have been drift at sea for weeks or, or months, uh, bashed back out, it seems that that you know from the news reports I see, it's mostly fishermen who are the ones that are bringing relief, whatever they can, to these stranded migrants at sea. Yeah, that's right. And then first, it just I think it's important to make clear that the Rohingya are definitely not migrants; they are fleeing persecution. You know, they certainly have a well-founded fear of persecution based on decades of persecution. Mm. So in this context, we talk about them as migrants. But given that, um, yeah, it is the fishermen. They uh, they get it. I suppose, you know, they would hate to be, you know, maybe some of them have been stranded. They know what it's like to be out in a boat with, you know, for hours on end and certainly probably not for weeks and months, you know, but really needing help and not being able to get it. So they've stepped up. And even though their country's policies are to not bring people in, they're doing just that. So I've, I've done an episode specifically focusing on the plight of the Rohingya uh, in Myanmar, and I encourage people to go back and, and listen to that. It was published last November. Um, but just kind of give, give us a, a bit of a refresher. Why are these people fleeing in such lar- num- large numbers and, and for, for so long? So the Rohingya are an ethnic and linguistic minority in Myanmar. They are they're a Muslim community, which is it's a majority Buddhist country, and they've been targeted and persecuted for decades. So even in 1978, there was a big um, they were basically attacked and pushed out, and 250,000 people were pushed out to Bangladesh, many of whom remain in Bangladesh even to this day. Uh, there was another big push out in, in 1990, another one in 2001, you know, again of hundreds of thousands. So this isn't a new phenomenon, but certainly what's happening now is, you know, it's, it's the newest evidence of this mass persecution. They um, they had been citizens of the country, always had been, until 1982, when a nationality law was uh, a new nationality law was passed that specifically excluded them from citizenship. And at that point, things got worse. What was the political rationale for excluding them from citizenship? Well, it comes, it's post-colonial, of course. So, you know, the, the British, of course, had been in there. So this was a post-colonial colonial nationality law that uh, really focused on uh, sort of, you know, who do we, who do we think, the government power that I'm, who do we think deserves to be from Burma, of Burma, and Buddhists, basically, <laughs> the people that they decided were from Burma, of Burma. And so there weren't an issue for those ethnic groups, 135 ethnic groups. But it actually included also a few of the very small ethnic Muslim groups, like the Kaman. The difference between the Rohingya and other uh, uh, religious minorities is that the Rohingya 
is a big population. It's one, right, what's about 1.3 million people. It was more then. It could have been up to 2 million people then. And they live in a state called Rakhine State with another ethnic minority, but who are Buddhist and who really wanted control of that state and, and continue to want it. They've never had an armed conflict there against the government. So the government is very interested in making sure that that state remains, no, it's not really stable at this point, but remains quiet anyway, that it's not, you know, that there isn't an armed conflict. And so their effort to to exclude and then to further marginalize and to ultimately try to push the Rohingya out is really a way politically to um, assuage the concerns of the Rakhine and basically to pander to the Rakhine and, you know, and make sure that they vote for them and that they also stay no, non-militant. Um, so just kind of thinking, you know, without knowing very much ab- about the, the specific situation uh, of, of the Rohingya, it would seem, you know, looking at a map, knowing what I do about, you know, international relations, that um, the most popular destination of Rohingya fleeing Myanmar would probably be Bangladesh, right? Right over the border, easy to get to Muslim majority country. Uh, was was that the case, and, and how have they been received in Bangladesh? That is the case. So they have been fleeing to Bangladesh for decades, like I said. I mean, 1978 had a huge exodus. And at this point, there are somewhere between 250 and 500,000 Rohingya in Bangladesh. Unfortunately, they are treated terribly there as well. There are a little over 20,000 who have been recognized as refugees and are, are uh, provided assistance by the UN Refugee Agency. But the rest live in really, I've been there actually and I've seen where they live. And it's, you know, it's really just makeshift, very bad conditions. Uh, international agencies are not allowed to help them except on very rare occasions. So they don't have access to health care. You know, they, they work in an informal market, so mm-hmm. it's very easily exploited. Uh, that's right. I think that's that's now. an important point to make because I, I remember seeing reports that the Bangladeshi government blocked groups like MSF and others from providing aid to Rohingya refugees in parts, certain parts of the country. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And that's exactly in this area. It's called Cox's Bazaar. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's basically right over the border. You know, the, the it's that long border. strip of land south of Chittagong. Right. And so you can basically walk over. Sometimes there's a river, so but it, you, know, you can wade through. It's usually not deep. Um, and when we were there in 2012, there were actually still people going to Bangladesh at that time. I, I was there right after the June conflict. Uh, people were going there then, but we went to Bangladesh and Myanmar at that time. And the people we met were so scared that they were going to get picked up because people are deported now. Bangladesh is absolutely not, you know, they they are actively trying to make sure the Rohingya won't go there. And the Rohingya know that, you know, not only are they not welcome, it's also a really dangerous, miserable place to be. And that's why they started moving to Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia. And that's why we're not talking about Bangladesh in this context. Mm -hmm. People aren't going there. So, so how? So, I, I, I now totally get why you know migrants or, or, or refugees, pardon me, are uh, willing to make that really treacherous journey across the sea. Um, but how do they do that? Like, are, are there smuggling operations? Like, who's running these smuggling operations? And what does that sort of journey look like? Like, how does a family decide or opt to go from Cox's Bazaar in, in Bangladesh to try to make it across the sea to Thailand? So, I mean, this is, 
you know, like the smuggling rats in lots of parts of the world. This is a pretty uh, robust operation that's been around for quite a few years, and there are a lot of actors and obviously a, a lot of money involved in it. So the roots are pretty well established. Uh, whether people go from Cox's Bazaar or go from you know, northern Rakhine State in, uh, in in Myanmar where the where the Rohingya live, or even Sitwe, which is further down, where the displacement camps, where the big displacement camps. Are. The city Sitwe in in uh, yes. Myanmar. Okay. Yeah, so there's about 140,000 people in displacement camps there. Where they were forced into them. They can't leave them. But there is the Bay is there. The Bay of Bengal is there. So they, that's the only way out is on boats. The only way to get out of the camps is on boats to other countries. So you know, getting deciding to go on the boat is not. I mean, I mean the boats are there. The decision whether to go and who goes, of course, that's excruciating. At first, it was mostly, you know, it was men, and it was fathers, and it was the oldest son, and that kind of thing. And uh, the hope was that people would, you know, basically be able to go to another country, earn some money, and, uh, you know, hopefully others can join them, or even send the money back. So when I was in the IDP camps in Sidway in September of last year, I actually talked to people who said they were sending family members because there is no, there wasn't enough food and there wasn't enough, uh, and there was no medical care, no medicine in the camps. And so people were going overseas to try to, you know, basically get whatever job, and then they would send the money back so their own family could be fed inside the camps. And like that's crazy because these camps are technically run by the UN Refugee Agency. But these camps, people don't get enough food in them. The World Food Program provides food, but it's not sufficient. And they, they admit it's not sufficient. And because this is a situation where people can't move, they also can't have some sort of you know side livelihood that brings in food, that brings in money. And so they're really stuck. And that's and not the case necessarily in other IDP and refugee camps where you know the UN agencies are involved, because people can also leave the camps and they can you know they they can build livelihood inside of the camps. That's almost impossible for the IDPs in Sitway because they're not allowed to leave. They're not allowed to move. And, and so, how then do families just the, the boats are there? What does that journey look like? Like, what's a what's a typical journey of of some of these seven thousand uh, refugees that are adrift at sea right now? So usually, I mean, some of them will have them enough money to go, and that could cost a couple of thousand dollars. And I would say this was the case more earlier, you know, 2012 and back than it is now. Now the situation is so desperate inside that you know the money's not there. So the smugglers say, look, we'll take you for either a little or no money, and you're going to be, you know, and you'll work somewhere and pay it back when you get there. And so they know they're entering into a vulnerable situation. But they have friends and family members that have done it, and everyone knew someone who had ended up being trafficked, but everyone also knew people who had ended up in Malaysia who are working now after being detained and, uh, and, um, you know, and are trying to obviously send money back home. The journey, from what I was told, is awful. It's, you know, the, 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 the boats are scary because they're not very seaworthy. Uh, people are crowded in. There isn't much food. There, and then food is rice, and I'm not talking about fresh fruit or anything. Uh, you know, there, there's some water, but it's not necessarily enough for the journey. And, of course, a lot of these boats take a lot longer to get to shore than they're supposed to, or they don't make it to shore at all. And so people are left without food and without water. And then hopefully, ultimately, they land in Indonesia or Malaysia. And most are trying to get to Malaysia. But when they get there, they know that they're likely to get detained. I mean, that, that was something that everyone said, you know, hopefully we get detained for six months, and then we get out, and then we start finding any sort of work we can get. 
And what does that detention look like? Because presumably, I mean, you said earlier that, you know, a lot of the uh, refugees are being trafficked by traffickers who have an expectation that they're going to work off their debt. Yeah, and I should so I should be clear. And there's two different parties working here. I mean, so there's smugglers who are basically, you know, they're they're trying to make a buck. They're bringing people from one point to another point. The traffickers are different because the traffickers, the traffickers are people who have um, misrepresented what they're doing. So they might have presented as smugglers. Look, we'll bring you to Malaysia. When you get there, you're going to have to pay us. But in fact, what happens is they get the people on the boat, then they bring them to Thailand to these jungle camps that we've heard about where you know, mass groups are being found of Rohingya. They bring them there, and then they actually sell them. I haven't actually heard about that. Describe that situation in, in Thailand. Okay, so in Thailand, there's been, uh, you know, ma- I mean, Thailand's known, unfortunately, for having a big trafficking problem, and the Rohingya have been the victim of it for many years. It's been worse recently because, you know, the situation is so desperate that the exploitation has been easier. So, so as I said, what was happening to some people was they were, you know, they were thinking they're smugglers, they're actually traffickers. They would bring them to Thailand, to these jungle camps, and when they're there, they would either say they would either have them calling their families while they're being tortured, saying, you know, you have to get this money to me to them, or they're going to kill me. And many people were killed because the families weren't able to get the money, or the family couldn't pay, and so the person sold, you know, to, sold to you know, fishermen or sold to into you know, rice paddies, or you know, just literally the, the body of the person. That person is sold, and then might be sold again and again. So Thailand. Uh, Thailand uh, cracked down on them recently. Um, it started in February, but it really escalated in early May. And that has a lot to do with what's happening now. And so the traffickers fled. They fled the jungle camps, and they had also started keeping people on boats. So they'd keep hundreds of people on boats doing the same thing. They'd be having, you know, they'd be calling the families at home and saying, we need money. And they would be saying, you know, and they'd be torturing people, raping people, and also saying that, uh, you know, we're just going to sell you on if, if we can't get the money. And so when the crackdown happened, they abandoned the camps and they abandoned the boats. And that's why a lot of these boats are sitting out there. They just abandoned them and they take out the engines. And so the, the Rohingya are left to just drift there. And that was the same in the jungle camps. They were left there, and a lot of them were already in you know, very weakened condition. So they, they, they were abandoned and couldn't move. And so people died there. The Thai government sent some of its military up to the jungle about Three, they started about two or three weeks ago, and they started finding mass graves of Rohingya. So some of them had been killed while in these, these uh, trafficking camps and buried in these mass graves. Others had been, others had died after the, the traffickers fled. And others, they found groups just wandering around the jungle. So the traffickers had led, fled. They were trying to find a way to, you know, somewhere, anywhere. But uh, obviously it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult terrain. But there's been dozens of mass graves found. This is unconscionable. Do you do you have a sense of how many people have been killed, or how many you know bodies have been found? Well, they know. Uh, so, I mean, in terms of the water itself, so drowning on the water or dying on the boats, the UNHCR has said that in the last six months, at least at least nine hundred and fifty-two. So that's just the water, and there has been twenty-five thousand people who left between January and March of this year. So, I mean, the number, even, you know, the risk of death at sea is so high. They think, you know, for the last six months, 952 people have died, unless it's 40,000 people. I mean, that's, you're almost talking about 140 people. It's a really, really high risk, and yet people are so 
desperate, and it's so bad in Myanmar that they're going anyway. With the um, jungle camps, I mean, I've seen reports coming out, so, you know, you don't really know how much is coming out, how much is actually getting out. But uh, from what I've seen so far, I mean, there's definitely, you know, a few dozen people, mass graves that have been found. I don't know how many bodies have been in them. So what you're describing, I mean, it's it's a regional issue, most certainly. Um, the root of of which is is like this enduring racism and discrimination experienced by an ethnic minority. Um, you know, like racism obviously is like a hard thing to cure. It's like a generations long thing to cure. Are there any more immediate policy prescriptions? region wide that might at least move the needle in the right direction and improve the most, you know, some of the most immediate challenges, humanitarian challenges facing the, the Rohingya? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the one that's, you know, most immediate and most important is restoring to the Rohingya their citizenship. And of course, for people who were born after this 1982, allowing them to, to get citizenship. That's the first thing. Now, the government has actually made an offer to the Rohingya. It has told them that if they are willing to uh, identify as Bengali, they can go through a citizenship verification process. But so, such, so doing would seem seemingly um, force them to uh, renounce their Myanmar citizenship for Bengali citizenship. Well, the thing is, so they don't have any citizenship right now. They don't even have Myanmar citizenship. Mm -hmm. But you're right that what they're trying to do is basically have them say on the record that I'm not actually from Myanmar, I'm Bengali. Mm -hmm. But they're not. I mean, you know, they're not foreigners. So th that's what they're trying to do here. They're just trying to, and it's another way, of course, of wiping out the, the Rohingya, the name even the Rohingya. They want it to change to Bengali. So the Rohingya, basically, almost all of them have said, no way, this is not going to happen. But that's what they've offered. Interestingly, you know, no one ever asks if Bangladesh is willing to take them. They're not. <laughs> you know, Bangladesh does not think that they are um, from Bangladesh. You know, I mean, there's no one in Bangladesh that says, oh, you're right, we've been pretending this whole time that you know, that they're from Myanmar, but they're actually, they're, they're actually Bangladeshi citizens and we'll take them back. I mean, that's not the case at all whatsoever. And they're correct. I mean, these are people who've lived in Myanmar for generations and longer, many for hundreds of years. Um, but that's the most immediate thing, and it can't be obviously attached to a requirement that people identify as Bengali. Um, in terms of Rakhine State where they live, you know, it's actually one, it's either the first or second poorest state in the country. So this is a state that's been neglected, not just for the Rohingya, but also for their counterparts, the Rakhine people. They are very neglected as well. It's a state where children start school at a later time than children in the rest of the country. The malnutrition rate across the state, not just for Rohingya, but across the state, is higher than in other parts of the country. It's even higher for Rohingya. But it's high for Rakhine as well. So this is a big problem because you know, Rakhine, you know, they feel that they've been uh, really neglected, and they have been by the central government. So from Refugee International's perspective, something else that has to happen is developing a real long-term um, investment and development that looks at you know, poverty alleviation, obviously livelihood, um, and reconciliation. But it shouldn't happen unless the Rakhine are willing to see reconciliation and reintegration. It should absolutely be, be conditioned on that. Because right now they're saying, you know, we can never live with the Rohingya again, even though they lived alongside them for decades basically in peace. So, I mean, um, those, I would say, are the two most important pieces. What can, like, individuals do? I mean, I'm just, like, horrified by the situation you described in Thailand in, in particular. What can, what can like, average individuals do to, to help 
you know, move the needle in the right direction here. So in terms of Thailand, something really important, and actually which was one of the reasons for the crackdown, was the the U.S. Trafficking in Persons Report. It comes out every year, and it ranks every country one, two, or three, one being the uh, sort of... um, I think now is that one being that one is the sort of uh, you know the best practices, three being the worst. Uh, Thailand had been a three for a long time, and then it moved up to a two. And the U.S. government and U.S. government basically made clear that it's going back down to a three if things continue as they are. And that's a lot of the reason that the crackdown happened when it did. The U.S. is sort of writing this report right now. Um, so it's very important for the Department of State who issues this report to hear from from Americans that I am really concerned about what's happening in Thailand. This is awful because it's 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 an incredibly influential document for other governments. I mean, I've heard not just Thailand, but quite a few governments I've talked to that are very concerned about what number they get on that report. So that's important, and it's a tool that Americans should uh, access on the computer and look at, and also do advocacy around. Also, I mean, there. This is an amazing time for this type of advocacy. I've been doing it for many years, and you know, this is the the most attention, fortunately and unfortunately, that the Rohingya have been able to get for a long time. And it's obviously because of the unbelievable things that are happening right now. But it's really important, again, I think, for the average person, you know, everyone out there, to make clear to the U.S. government and to make clear to the international community that you expect something to happen. So write letters, you know, call your legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some good petitions out there. And, and, you know, get involved in them and, and share this with your friends. You know, share the newspaper articles. Um, write about it on Facebook. You know, tweet about you know, it. I usually, I usually don't, like, ask that question at the end, but just the situation described is just, like, unconscionable to me. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your analysis. I, I really appreciate, uh, you know, you sharing your thoughts with me on, on this topic. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was a very important episode, I think. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. We're a podcast about foreign policy, you know, often through a human rights lens, though not always. We post shorter conversations about something topical and in the news every Thursday. And every Monday, we post longer conversations with foreign policy thought leaders, luminaries, celeb types about their life and career. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives. You can subscribe on iTunes for free. Get the app for free. Send me an email. That's also free. And we'll see you next time. Bye.